This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Okay, so there's weed, pot, grass, whatever you call it. We're talking today about the cannabis industry, which is kind of where the chem lab meets agriculture. And there's this one type of cannabis product that's getting a lot of attention. It's called Delta-8-THC, or simply Delta-8. It's chemically synthesized, and it's now the fastest-growing product in the hemp industry. You can get it in the form of edibles or vapes for vape pens, tinctures, infused beverages, and you can get it at smoke shops, CBD shops, vape shops all around. And you can also get it at some gas stations um, just at the counter like you would, you know, cigarettes or other tobacco products. Caitlin Kessheimer is a researcher at Auburn University, an Alabama cooperative extension. She's been watching Delta 8 products populate the shelves in her community. They're kind of eye-catching. They're some colorful and shiny and usually have some sort of floral component to it, whether it's a hemp leaf or other kind of botanical picture. And it usually has a wellness kind of vibe to it. Now, just to be clear, Caitlin doesn't work for the cannabis industry. She's actually an entomologist, helping farmers around Alabama with any insect that might affect their crops. Hemp and Delta-8 is something I never thought I'd have to know about, but here we are. So, always exciting. The life of an entomologist, am I right? Now, the cannabis plant has two main superactive ingredients. THC, which is what gets you high, and CBD, or cannabidiol, which doesn't get you high. So when Alabama farmers started growing hemp for CBD, Caitlin got a lot of questions about how to keep the pests away. She even got her own license to grow and study hemp herself. But when Delta-8 THC burst onto the scene, it raised some alarm bells for her. Because it's a product that will definitely get you high. Some growers had excess biomass from growing hemp, and they called me and asked, how do they convert it to Delta-8 THC? And I had no idea. To them, in response, you said, like, what's Delta-8? Yeah, I said, I have I have no idea, and why do you want to do this? Um, what's wrong with the cannabidiol? What's, why do you not want CBD? And at that point is also when the prices for CBD were plummeting. They went from, you know, $10 a percentage point a pound down to less than a dollar. And so there was a lot of economics involved in this, and Delta-8 was the next logical progression for a lot of these producers. Which has really changed things for consumers. So today on the show, we're going to demystify Delta-8 on a chemical level. Talk about where it comes from, how it's become so popular, and why science and the federal government are falling behind on regulating the cannabis industry. I'm Emily Kwong, and you're listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. 
That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, to understand what Delta-8 is, let's revisit the chemical components of cannabis, shall we? Cannabis sativa, it's the species name for both hemp and marijuana. In the plant, uh, there's cannabidiol, also known as CBD. We mentioned that earlier. Then we have the thing that gets you high, tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. So that's going to be in marijuana, where hemp grown for, you know, the wellness in CBD, it has so little amounts of THC in it that it's not going to get you that typical psychoactive high that you're looking for. And so that's the main difference between the two plants. But there are different types of THC. There's Delta 9 THC, which you see in a lot of traditional marijuana products. And then there's this thing called Delta 8 THC. A term we use commonly for Delta 8 is diet weed or diet marijuana. Mm. The high isn't as high. Right, yeah. And so, I mean it's going to react with people, affect people differently, but it's, it's can still make you high, but not nearly as quick or intense as Delta nine. What makes it like Delta nine? So it is a scientific term for literally the location of where a double bond is in this carbon atom. It is on the ninth chain of a carbon atom and you have a double bond between the atoms. And if we remember from basic chemistry, I'm going to throw out another science term as isomer. And Ooh, I'm brushing off some knowledge. Haven't right? heard that word in a while. Oh, okay, all it's, right. It's been a minute. And so isomers, they're compounds that have the same formula. So they're made up of the same things, but a different arrangement of atoms. And so that can affect the properties. And then also if you're ingesting these uh, chemicals, they can influence your reaction. And so in Delta-8, you have a double bond on the 8th chain. In Delta-9, you have a double bond on the ninth chain. And if we want to get real crazy, we have Delta-10 out there too, which we know even less about. Hmm. And there are trace amounts of Delta-8 in marijuana, but it has to be derived from cannabidiol in the hemp plant. And so there's no really standard protocol for deriving pure Delta-8. And so a lot of it is trial and error and maybe some Mm. backyard chemistry, if you will. What's your reaction to that? It's alarming. I, I think back to, you know, when I took organic chemistry for the first time in college and you're doing these reactions and you follow it step by step that the, you know, the professor gives you. And it's like, okay, at this step, you're supposed to have a clear liquid. At this step, you're supposed to have a green sludge. And if you didn't have that, then something went wrong. But you're like, I'm following this protocol and I'm doing all these things right. It's because, you know, you have temperature and environment and there's so many things that can go wrong. There's no standard protocol or testing. And some of the products that you're using to convert it um, can be really caustic acids that can affect you when you're ingesting them. And you don't necessarily know until you take it. And so I would caution anyone who is buying, make sure you know that this product was tested 
and all of the products and byproducts are not going to be toxic. Okay, so if Delta-8 is like the milder cousin and hemp developers are kind of cooking it up in their backyard, um, why can it be sold at places like gas stations or convenience stores if Delta-8 has milder but somewhat similar effects to Delta-9 that we see in other marijuana products? Sure, that's a great question. And it's because of the 2018 Farm Bill that made it federally legal to have THC as long as it's derived from hemp or hemp-derived products. And so it has to be less than 0.3 Delta-9 THC, which is so little. Hemp was removed from the Controlled Substances Act, and so it's not technically a drug as far as the government is concerned. And so we're that's where we end up in this legal gray area where Delta-8 is actually federally legal, but these products aren't regulated or evaluated by the FDA. Given how things are right now with how Delta-8 is being made and sold, what are some of its risks? So according to um, the FDA, we've had hundreds and hundreds of reports of Delta-8 exposure, and a lot of them were accidental exposures to children under 18. But depending on how much you take, what other byproducts are in that product, um, we've heard reports of, you know, hallucinations, nausea, fainting, um, low blood pressure, which can lead to trouble standing, slurred speech, um, difficulty breathing. And so there's a lot of um, health risks from taking something that maybe is, is new and foreign to your body or because it has a slower onset than your standard Delta-9, people may take a lot of it, especially in the form of edibles, waiting for a high. And then they basically overdose on, on Delta-8 and can get really, really sick. When you say there's been exposures, what does that mean? So usually that is if an adult has purchased legally some Delta 8 products and the packaging looked like a gummy bear or a cookie and a person under 18 took it. And so a lot of these are accidental um, ingestions. And we also have had issues with pets Um, Mm. we don't have a lot of research on how animals and children will react. We just know that they've gotten really sick. And so as far as I know, we haven't had any deaths or long-term damage, but we're still really in the beginning of this kind of craze of Delta-8. Yeah, it sounds almost like Delta-8 has just kind of slipped under the radar of the federal government. So what are states doing to deal with that? So here in Alabama, there was a bill introduced last year. It was actually voted down just to ban all forms of THC. Wow. Um, yeah, and there was a ban in, in most recently in Texas that was lifted, whereas other states, I think New York is the, the most recent one to be successful in putting restrictions on, on both producing and selling Delta-8. And um, I, I think it's up, up to over a dozen states have either restricted purchasing or banned it completely. But it, to me, like we got to this point with Delta-8 because CBD was legalized and there's so much of it. And so 
people are just going to find another compound, I think, in this plant. There's so many different chemicals in this plant that if THC and, and Delta-8 is banned, they'll find the next one. And so it's it's hard for state and federal laws to keep up with all these, you know, backyard chemists, so to speak. And it sounds like there is a lack of real research about all the different cannabinoids out there that could be created. There's like a dearth of research about this plant in general. Um, Why is that? So ever since we put marijuana, cannabis, sativa on the controlled substances list, um, there's been very, very little approvals for research. And as we know, with plant breeding, I mean, we've, even though it's been illegal in many places, we've been breeding cannabis for certain traits for decades and decades. And so there's so much variety out there in the plant genetics, even within this one species, cannabis sativa, and people haven't had access to do the research on that. And I think we did ourselves a big disservice um, by adding it to the Controlled Substances Act and making it a Schedule One drug. It's been stigmatized. There's a a really long history, and I feel like we could talk for hours about just the history of the plant and the laws surrounding it. And as each state now allows recreational or medicinal cannabis use, we don't have the information to do that as safely as we could if we started this years and years ago. How has it affected you that scientific research into cannabis that is being heavily used all over the country has been blocked by law? It's incredibly frustrating. I I have to jump through hoops to do hemp research, and I understand there should be some sort of regulations, but I've had to go get background checks and be fingerprinted, um, and I have very strict protocols for where the plants can and cannot be on campus. Um, And as for the foreseeable future, I won't be able to do any research on marijuana or cannabis plants. And so at the end of the day, it's really frustrating because I do see the benefits of this plant, um, both on the agricultural side as, you know, to help diversify our agriculture in the United States, especially in the Southern U.S., where we can grow a lot of crops in the long growing season. But also on the human side, we know that it helps people um, that have ailments. And so why can't we treat this as any other medicine or plant compound that has benefits. And if taken incorrectly, it has bad effects. So yeah, bottom line, it's just been frustrating. So if science nor federal regulation is really able to keep up with the industry in the United States, what's your biggest fear about what's what could happen and what would prevent that from happening? So my fear is that tainted or dangerous products are marketed and sold on a mass scale. What we need is a, from the top down, we need regulations and uniform sampling and testing approvals and regulations to make sure that safe products are going out there. Because as long as there is this gray area. A lot of people aren't going to understand it, and there'll be people trying to make money off of it. And so we need a much more formalized, uniform procedure if this is going to be sold on a big scale. Well, thank you so much, Caitlin, for talking to me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
This episode was produced by Eva Tesfai and edited by Sarah Saracen. Margaret Serino checked the facts. The audio engineer for this episode was Ted Meebing. I'm Emily Kwong. Thanks for listening to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business? Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob. Hey there, everybody. It's Peter Sagal. On our show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's usually just jokes. But a man cannot live on dad jokes alone. Sometimes you need to express your trauma that haunts you and drives you, as I did on a bonus episode just for Wait, Wait Plus supporters. A deep dish pizza hurt me. That's right. For a chance to hear the raw, real, revealing truth, sign up for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Plus at plus.npr.org in order to feel my pain.